Leviticus chapter 23. I'm going to be reading at verse 9, and we'll go down through verse 14. Listen, we are looking at the seven feasts that God gave to Israel, the seven Levitical feasts during our time of Lent this year. And the feasts are reminders to us to give pause and reflect on the larger story of how God is redeeming and reconciling us and all things through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you the thesis of the sermon, and then I'm going to read the text for us. Here's the thesis. Are you ready? In a culture that says, make it up, cover it up, or try harder, you and I are consecrated for the true and the beautiful and the good. In a culture that says, make it up, cover it up, or try harder, you and I are consecrated for what is true, what is beautiful, and what is good. Keep that in mind as we read from Leviticus chapter 23, beginning at verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priests shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever, throughout your generations, in all your dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you take your word now and would you massage and marinate and change our hearts by it? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a culture that says, make it up or cover it up or try harder. But you and I have been consecrated for what is true, what is beautiful, and what is good. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and today, the Feast of first fruits, all point us to a different aspect of the way that God brings His people back into a right relationship with Him. Passover is talking about redemption, how God delivered you from the bondage of sin and slavery. The Feast of Unleavened Bread talks about separation from the world. And today, the Feast of First Fruits talks not about deliverance, not about separation, but about consecration. You have been consecrated to what is true and beautiful and good. Now listen, the word consecration is kind of a fancy word. We don't always hear that word used a lot today, but we see it everywhere. When a building is dedicated, when a business is open, when the ribbon is cut, that space is consecrated for the intended purpose of that business. When you buy a birthday present at Target for your friends and you bring it to the birthday party, you have consecrated that present for your friend. You've given it to them for their birthday. Teenagers, when you get your first car, it's a big deal. 
And that car is consecrated to you for your protection, for your transportation. Students, when you get your diploma and you move from being a student to the workforce, you are consecrated. You are separated from the life of a student and you are consecrated into the working world. Or when you get your professional license as a CPA or an engineer or whatever it may be, you are consecrated to that specific task, to that vocation, to use your education and your talents and everything for his glory. Are you with me? You're consecrated. It's a word that we don't often use, but we see it everywhere. And so to talk about this whole idea of consecration, I'm going to give three stories today. And the three stories I'm going to give you are three stories that speak to the underlying storylines that you and I and many of our neighbors in Owasso tell. It is the, as I think about um, our culture, especially in Oklahoma and in the South, these three things are the things, these three stories are kind of the stories that if we're not careful, they become the stories of our life. So let's dive into them together. I'm going to tell you the story of a guy named Roger, a story of a guy named Carrie, and a story of a guy named Paul. Roger. Roger the relativist. Here's his line. Are you ready? The relativist's story is the story of, I am who I am, so do not mess with my version of the truth. Elizabeth Atmeyer said that we are living in the midst of a society and of a people who have lost the story of their lives altogether. Plato used to use three things to describe everybody's story. He would say that the three fundamental principles of life by which everybody defines themselves are in relationship to these three ideas. What is true, what is beautiful, and what is good. And no matter what projection that you have for the successful, well-lived life, you're answering the question, what is true about the world? What is beautiful to your affections, your desires, and what is good for you? And relativists are the ones who tell the story, I am who I am. Don't you mess with my version of truth. Simone Weil was a French philosopher, a Christian mystic. In her 34 years of life, she wrote more than 20 books. And she was the one who said that to be rooted, to be rooted in a bigger story is perhaps the most important and the least recognized need of the human soul. One of, uh, one of the family's favorite things to do, at least until recently, was um, at 5.30 every weekday night, we would turn on the TV and we would watch NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. We watched it all the time. We loved it. My kids would know about Brian when they would say, oh, Brian Williams, Brian Williams. They would watch it on TV. And in January, he told a story about how he was flying in a Chinook helicopter in Iraq that had gotten hit with an RPG. And it was a harrowing tale that he survived. It was incredible coverage of this very, very um, uh, near-death experience. So he told the story with great detail on the air. Um, the only problem was it wasn't true. And last month in February, he apologized um, for it. Brian Williams was the 23rd most trusted person 
in the United States. He was on par with Warren Buffett, Denzel Washington, and the sports broadcaster Robin Roberts. After he had misled the American people, he fell down from 23 down to 835 on the list of the top 1,000 most trusted people in the world. Listen, this is not about Brian Williams, but this is about the relative tendencies that you and I have, if we're not careful, to say things like, that's just who I am. This is just how God made me. And I just want to push back on that just for a second and think about it. We, we have a tendency in our culture to, to dwell upon the intra-psychic, the, the ideas, the psychic inner desires of our hearts to use as a basis for so many things, this line. This is just who I am, whether it's political or it's religious or it's social. You hear this all the time, don't you? But I want you to just think about that statement. This is who I am. Grammatically, that statement makes no sense. It doesn't tell us anything. I mean, you could be an axe murderer, for goodness sake. To say this is who you are makes no substantive claim about who you really are. But don't mess with my version of the truth. Listen, that's not an identity. It's a kind of isolated, fragmented individualism that takes so many people in our neighborhoods and even in our house by storm. The truth is that there is a yearning inside of every single one of us, me included, to long to be connected to some bigger story. And we are constantly reinventing our stories. I was just talking to the guys out there about an MIT professor named Sherry Turkle who just wrote a book about Facebook and how technology, you know, we've known this for a long time, but now they're starting to publish more and more about it, about how Facebook is actually bringing out depression in people. It's making people more depressed because all they do is see the projected images of their friends and think, oh my gosh, I can never measure up to that. I mean, your life could be amazingly sweet, but then you compare it to the profiles of your friends and you just get crushed because you haven't been to Rome. You haven't taken your kids to the birthday party. You didn't make a cake for your daughter's fourth birthday. I mean, give me a break. Today's cultural mandate is to place your identity in things that you're concerned about. To be the best parents, to be the best citizens, to be the best neighbors, to be the best Christians that you can be. And when that happens, your brokenness tends to get hidden. And so all of your quiet addictions, all of your depression, all of your angst, all of your marital stumbles and your parental struggles are actually pretty pronounced in the larger culture, but you are afraid to let them out yourself. And so, it's like the ooze behind the closed door. It's putting pressure on the frames of your house. You don't want to talk about it because it's too risky. And because everyone is living with this kind of private struggle and this internal angst in Owasso and in Bartlesville and in Catoosa and in Skytook and in Grove, we really don't know what to do with it or where to place it. And so we live lives of invented selves. And if you're not careful, you will fall into the relativist's trap. Don't, don't, don't tell me what's true. I am who I am. Don't mess with my version of the truth. Fear 
first fruits was a reminder to Israel that God made them and that he provides for them. The idea of first fruits was created by God to help his people become re-rooted in all that he had done for them, to connect them to their larger story. It was the first of the barley harvest. It was the 16th of Nisan. It was the time when they were right after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just after that Sabbath day. The men before the barley harvest would bring three huge rings out to the neighboring fields around Jerusalem and they would drop these rings in the fields and then they would harvest, I mean they would, they would sow the, the seed and they would let it grow up and then the night after the feast of unleavened bread three men with giant sickles would walk out of the city and secular and religious leaders would follow the elders and the priests and the elders and priests Roman history tells us exactly how it was done would stay at the city gates and these three men would separate each to a separate field and they would go find that ring that the Sanhedrin the men had put the leaders of Israel had put to let the barley grow up and whatever grew up within that ring was the first fruits it was the harvest to God and so the three men with these giant sickles would walk out in procession to each of these three fields. And at 6 p.m. our time, they would look back toward the city and they would say, Has the sun set on the 15th day? And the elders and priests would confirm, The sun has set! Shall I reap? You shall reap! And they would hold up this giant basket. With this basket? With this basket! And they would hold up their sickle. With this sickle? And they would say, with that sickle, you shall reap. And then those men would cut the first fruits of the barley harvest, and they would put it into the basket, and they would bring it to the priests to be a consecration to the Lord, to say, not just that God had given them barley, but that in the very, very beginning, God gave them a beautiful, beautiful garden. And man chose to not live as God had called him to live because man wanted to live on his own. And man didn't want God to tell him what was true. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with my version of truth, Adam said. I know what's true. So he went and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God didn't leave him alone. God provided animal coverings for them and after they left the garden God provided for Noah amidst his wrath in the storm a boat to protect the eight and after Noah God had provided a ram in the thicket for Abraham to sacrifice instead of Isaac and after Abraham God had provided materials for the people in Egypt to survive amidst their 400 years of captivity and after they came out of Egypt God provided manna in the wilderness every day and twice on the day before the Sabbath so they wouldn't have to pick it during the Sabbath and then God provided land for them so that when you Israel get into the land you shall give me the first fruits of your harvest to remind you not just that I've given you barley for the harvest but that I have protected you with coverings for your shame and your nakedness. I have given you protection 
amidst the wrath of my storm through Noah. I have given you a ram in the thicket when you should have been the one put under the knife. I have given you materials in the midst of your slavery while you were in Egypt. I have given you not only materials while you were in the midst of slavery, but I delivered you out of slavery. I have brought you Moses as a great deliverer. I have given you food in the midst of the wilderness for you to survive on. I have given you a good land flowing with milk and honey called Canaan for you to have. No, no, God, don't tell me what's true. I just want to, I am who I am. And God tells all of us who have tendencies to strive to reinvent ourselves. The Lord has provided so much for you. And not only has he given you everything he's given Israel, but he's given you his very self. Because God said to Adam, even though you've sinned, I'm binding myself to my people. And he told Abraham, no matter what happens, I bind myself to you. And though every man be, pre, be proved a liar, I will be faithful to my promise. Friends, it's a heavy weight of responsibility to invent our own unique identities. There is nothing to guide or purge our internal pressure. And so decision-making often just cripples us because we don't want to tarnish the image of ourselves, the ideal self, this notion of truth that we've created for ourselves. And so we become paralyzed sometimes by our own decision-making. The Feast of First Fruits reminds you, as Hebrews 13.8 says, that it's Jesus Christ who loves you, who is given to you, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is faithful amidst every vicissitude. It's a great word, isn't it? Every changing season of your life to be faithful to you. And there is nothing more precious for us as Christians than the eternal security and the stability and the permanence that we have in Jesus Christ. So, in a culture that just says, make it up, Jesus Christ is the truth. And so, what are we to do about it? Well, by application, we are to have a conscious awareness that everything good that we have comes from God. It's to be a conscious awareness. It means that you're thinking about it. You're aware of it. You're actively thankful for it. Psalm 138 says, I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods. I sing your praise. I bow down to your holy temple and I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Listen, what do you have that didn't come from God? Ma, children, did you choose your parents? Adults, did you choose the time and space and history in which you'd be born? Did you choose your families? Did you choose your education? Did you choose your job, really? Did you give yourself those talents that you've had since you were probably very little? Everything we have comes from God. And the Feast of First Fruits is a reminder for us that He is our provider.
that he is true and that he loves you. And there is only one person who can say, I am who I am. And who is that? It's the Lord. Because Moses said, who shall I tell them is sending me when he saw the burning bush? And God says, you tell them I am who I am. Why can God say, I am who I am? This is just who I am. And we can't because he is the creator and you are the creature. And you are defined in relationship to him, not the other way around. And the reason you're so exhausted is because you do not believe that God loves you. You don't believe he could possibly love your story, and so you're fighting so fiercely to make up a story that you feel like will please him. Listen, he loves your story. And you should run to him in conscious awareness of how great and good he has been to you. So Roger the relativist says, I am who I am. Don't mess with my version of truth. Oh, friends, please don't be like Roger and look to your Savior. Second, there's another story that's deeply ingrained in our day, and that is the story of Carrie. Carrie is a consumer. It's the consumerist's story, and here's what Carrie says. Carrie says, I am what I buy, so do not tell me that I'm lonely. Notice in the text, if you lower your eyes, you'll see in verse 11, it says, And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, three times in this text, it talks about waving the sheaf. The way they would wave the sheaf is that once the priests received it from these men with the sickles, and they brought it in, they would take, and they would wave it from the soles of their feet all the way over their head to the soles of their other foot. It was a way of saying that it's not just the barley harvest that God has given us, but he has given us everything about our lives. Indeed, everything. But consumerism tells you that you are defined by what you buy, by what you have. There is this um, tendency for you to believe that there's a vested interest in the acquisition of your possessions and your personhood and that those things are intimately and deeply connected. In other words, there is a vested interest in everybody in town to say that what you have, where you live, what you own, and who you are are deeply connected. That's a storyline that the culture wants you to believe. And sales and marketing are great things. It's a great vocation. But is the tagline that leads the product true of the world? True of that product itself even? When you think that the acquisition of your possessions and your personhood are deeply connected, what happens is that you think that you have a freedom of choice to choose all these good things to define who you are, but actually that freedom of choice leads to a deep sense of dependency. And we are dependent upon the things that we purchase to define who we are before the world. So every decision you make is in reference to a consumerist mentality. And soon you're judging everybody else by your vision of the great life. As Eugene Peterson says in Traveling Light, we have more freedom, but we're less free. We said consecration means to be devoted to something, not just separated from something. 
Man cannot be isolated and be healthy. He was always called to be dedicated to something. And to think of salvation as a means of only being separated from the world is tragic because even Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 says, Father, I have not called them to be taken out of the world, but that they may be sent into the world. You are consecrated to be his hands and feet. But so often we are sideswiped in our callings as Christians because we take in this consumerist mentality and without trying, we get sucked into it. And though we're more free, we have less freedom. And as a result, we have no resilience in the face of suffering. Because when somebody or something gets in our way, we just can't invent ourselves anymore. And eventually you will get exhausted. We can't control that someone or something sometimes. And if our identities are founded on such a narrow definition of what is beautiful, then you become incredibly fragile. Someone tells you that you're ugly and you're crushed. What happens, for example, when you start losing your body? Kara Tippetts is the wife of a church planter in Colorado Springs named Jason Tippetts. And she has been slowly dying of cancer over the last um, year and some time. And many of you have the By Faith magazines on your chairs. You'll see a picture of Kara on the front of it. And I encourage you to read her story. Kara writes this, that I'm learning what it is to die by degrees. Parts of my body failing, parts of my abilities vanishing. And what then? Says Tippetts, who's a mother of four. Yesterday, I kept thinking, I drove myself for the last time and I didn't realize it was the last time. I don't remember the last time in the driver's seat or the music that we played. I just realized that I will likely never drive again. So, there it is. My little body has grown tired of the battle and treatment is no longer helping. And she continues, but what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. He has still given me breath and with it I pray I would live well and fade well by degrees of doing both, living and dying, as I have the moments left to live. Do you see what she's saying? She is saying, though I'm losing my health, though I'm losing the world's narrow definition of beauty, though I don't look put together, I'm dying of cancer. I'm his. And Jesus has made me beautiful. The consumerist says that I am what I buy. So don't tell me I'm lonely. And the gospel comes to tell you your definition of beauty is far too narrow. Jesus comes to bring you deep beauty. He loves you. James Houston is... Um, He's got to be in his 80s now. He's a professor at Regent College in um, Canada. And he writes that the boomer generation is finding the disenchantment of a, of a professional identity very, very hard to swallow as they retire. 
This is why, he says, it's extremely hard, even fearful for those who are facing retirement now because they are having a crisis of identity. That as people who are entering retirement age are wondering, I've defined myself so long by my profession. I'm not beautiful anymore. What am I to do? And Jesus says to them, like Augustine said many years ago, you want to know who a man really is? Do not ask him what he does. Ask him what he loves. And Jesus loves you. He cares for you. And you are not defined by what you do. You are defined by your loves. Do you love your Savior? Do you see as you approach retirement age how much he's with you? And all the excitement of beginning your career, you think it's fading, but it's not. He is still there. And he's ever faithful to you. You're not defined by your profession. You're defined by your loves. Jesus comes to us and says that you don't have to strive to acquire a self. You don't have to strive to make up yourself. That's a very radical statement today. But Jesus says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from your constant reinvention of yourselves because you don't have to strive for an identity that's beautiful. I give it to you and you can receive it by faith. The gospel says you don't have to invent yourself out of a multitude of options. You can receive what has been done for you. In a culture of just cover it up, Jesus lays himself before you and says, I've covered you. You don't have to worry about being ugly because I see you as beautiful and my opinion of you is the only thing that matters. In a world that says make it up, cover it up, or try harder, Jesus is your beauty. So what are we to do with this? Well, you're to actively practice the vocation that God has given you. You're actively to steward the good gifts that he's given you. Practically speaking, what does that mean? Well, number one, it means think about the way you spend your money. The idea of first fruits is not explicitly about the Old Testament tithe. It's actually much deeper and broader than that. First fruits were to give the first part of the flock. They were to give the first of the barley harvest. They were to give the best that you have. But so much of us, when we think about our lives and the stories of our lives, you can actually read that story through your spending patterns. Do you tend, for example, do you tend to give God the leftovers or the first fruits? Financially speaking. I mean, many of us, I, many of you have told me your story. Like you, 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 it's hard for you to trust God for your income. And so you, you wait and see what you have left over and you give him. If you knew that the president of the United States were coming to your house tomorrow, you wouldn't say, hey, honey, let's heat up the Papa John's. And let's give it to the president. You would plan and you would strive and you would be specific and intentional about how you cook that meal for him. Money is like the circulatory system of the body. If, if, if your blood stops, your body shuts down. If money stops, you can't do anything. That is true. Which is why it is so much a diagnostic of your heart. Because so much of your anxiety is about finances. So, 
do you trust him with your finances? And do you give regularly, systematically, and generously? Do you offer him your best or your leftovers? Or what about your vocation? God has set you off from the world to the world for a very specific task. Many of you define yourselves by your occupation. That is where you go to work, the desk that you sit in, the the title on your business card. But that's not your vocation. Your vocation is what is the calling that you've received from the Lord, given your education, your spiritual gifts, your talents, your networking abilities. Your vocation is that to which God has called you to use for his glory, all that he's given you for his kingdom purposes. Your occupation, your job, just so happens to be the particular position in which you're living out the vocation at that time. So you can change occupations a hundred times, but most of the time you have a pretty consistent vocation in a fairly consistent industry. Are you using that to glorify the Lord? Or do you just see your vocation as a way to make a paycheck so that you can put food on the table? I just want to challenge you to see your vocation as more than that, especially you men who so define yourselves by what you do. You are called to be a minister through the excellence in your work just as much as I'm called to be a minister in preaching the gospel every week. Steward your gifts for the glory of God. That is what it means to help make the world beautiful as beautiful creatures. Martin Luther King Jr. has a great, great, I wish I could play the clip of the sermon. I certainly can't preach the way he does. Oh gosh, I wish I could. But he says, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, if he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Handel or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry, he should sweep streets so well that the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Whatever your job is, whatever your vocation is, do you do it for the glory of God? And do you enjoy him? That's how he intends to make the world beautiful through you. We are an echo of God's gift of grace to the world. And that takes us very quickly to our third. You have Roger, who's a relativist. Don't tell me, don't, I am who I am. Don't tell me my version. Don't mess with my version of truth. You have Carrie, who's the consumerist. I am what I buy. Don't tell me that I'm lonely. And then lastly, you've got Paul, who's the passionist. I am what I feel, so do not take away my fun. Ancient civilizations canonized the planets and they bowed down and worshiped them. Today, we canonize experience and we find, if we find it lacking, we try harder. The ancients made up cosmic battles between good and evil. And they must try harder and harder to please the God because they had let them down. And today, we rely so heavily on our experience, on our feelings, on the pleasures of sex or of acquiring possessions or of having fun and some experience that that begins to define who we are. But the truth of the matter is that your feelings can be so misleading and illusory. And that's all the more reason why God bound himself to us. He chose us. God has always chosen his people. He chose Abraham. He chose Moses. He chose David. Has he chosen you? 
Do you believe that Jesus is the true and the beautiful and the good? Listen, despite the try-harder mentality of Paul the Passionist, nobody becomes a Christian because they tried harder. Scripture says that Christ came to us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people don't try very hard because they can't. And the glory of the gospel, children, the glory of the gospel is that you don't have to try to win God's affection for you. If you believe what he's done for you, you have it. And he could never love you anymore because he's full of love and you can, he could never love you any less. And God opens our hearts to believe just like he did with Lydia. And despite our feelings, he cracks open our hearts to give attention to his word and the first fruits of the gospel point us to the fact that God provides not only for our spiritual needs, but he provides not only for our physical needs, but he provides for our spiritual needs as well. And that God gave us the first fruits of his blessing. And that he sent us his firstborn son. He gave us the best of what he had so that we, who always tend to try harder and are so exhausted, might be able to reap the harvest that Christ has sown for us. God offered up Christ as the first fruits of his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then at his coming, we are the first fruits who belong to Christ. Romans 8.23, not only does, does the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of his Holy Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved in the Lord, just as Avery read earlier, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. James 1.8, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Listen, do you feel your heart melted by the extraordinary love that God has for you? He's after you. And he wants you to know that he is the true, he is the beautiful, and he is the good. And he invites you into that beautiful reality that he is truth, he is beauty himself, and despite your feelings, he is good. And so whether you can relate to Roger or to Carrie or to Paul, whether you're, you tend toward relativism or consumerism or toward a kind of passionate pursuit of the experience, the gospel provides all of those things and more because it is true God says, I am who I am. It is beautiful because God gave us the first fruits of his kingdom in Jesus Christ so that we might be a kind of first fruit, as James says. And we are viewed then with the beauty that Christ gives to us through his work for us. And God is good all the time. Look at what he's given you. Despite your feelings, he is the truth, and he comes to you this morning in love. So as we come to celebrate this table in just a moment, friends,
we come as a kind of first fruits of his love. For he has made us true and beautiful and good in Jesus Christ, who is truth, beauty, and goodness in himself. So come to grips with his amazing love for sinners like you and like me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we need the great story, your great story, to give us courage in the midst of our exhaustion of reinventing our stories again and again. We don't need to reinvent ourselves because you love the real us and you came to us in love. You showed us the truth. You make us beautiful and you are good. Thank you that you remind us of the, through the first of the Feast of first fruits, that one day when Christ comes again, we will be taken into glory with you to enjoy you forever. And until then, help us to be an echo of your kingdom as we extend your good news through all of our vocations, through each of our homes, through each of our neighborhoods, even as you by the Holy Spirit extend it into the depths of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.